Good morning. Before we look at Matthew chapter 2, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be gathered together today. And as we open your word, as we look at a, a great Christmas text, may you empower us, may you convict us, may you speak to us, and may we leave changed people because of the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And he told them, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me the word that I may too come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I am Herod, King Herod. If you want to keep your sorry noggins, peasant bobbleheads, you best listen up. You best learn, and when you are in my presence, you best bow. I am not a king by birth. Oh, we all know about kings by birth. Right genetics, a little bit of luck. Daddy's king. So little prince, when daddy gets bumped off, becomes the next king. What's the challenge in that? There's no difficulty. Because of that, we've all known kings who have IQs like a rock. But that is not my story. I am king through blood, sweat, and fear. <laughs> Wrong again, bobbleheads. You thought I was going to say blood, sweat, and tears. Your tears, perhaps, not mine. No, I'm a king through blood, sweat, and fear. I love the look of fear, and I have put in enough. Enough time, enough effort to be declared king. The Roman emperor, Caesar, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, who has his thumbprint on all of the known world, saw the way I judiciously ruled over Judah. He saw my iron fist. 
He saw my power. He saw my administration. And even he admired what I did. How I did it. How I turned a backwashed nation like Judah into something of value. So he declared me king. I'm a self-made man. Scratch that. I'm a self-made king. I think Forbes should come calling. I'd be an interesting interview, to say the least. Fear me. Bow before me. Never cross me. I neither fear God nor man, but you better fear me. My name is unimportant. But tradition has given me the name Gasper, so I will go with that name. Now, some have had this misconception that we magi are kings. Oh, I wish that were true. But the reality is we are not kings. And and you have a wonderful Christmas hymn. We three kings of Orient are flattering, touching. I love that song, but it's not accurate. It's not true. In fact, I actually worked for a king. I worked for King Phraates V of the Babylonian Empire, and I was one of his trusted soothsayers. In addition to this, I also dabbled in the black arts and astrology. I would try and look at these celestial movements and predict the future for not only my king, but also our nation. I was a a magi, but I was a very, very serious adulterer as well, serving the gods of Naboo and Marduk and Ahura Mazda. I was very, very far from God. Yet God in his grace chose to look on an idolater as myself and redeem me, bring me into relationship with himself, and even use me in his divine redemptive purposes. See, I was an eyewitness to his son Jesus being born in a manger, coming to earth as a man. And by his grace, I was able to follow a king that was greater than any king I'd ever served before. Praise his name for serving an idolater like myself. I... I'm going to drop a bit of knowledge on you. Feel fortunate, take notes, pay attention. I've already told you, rightly so, that I'm a king, King Herod. But that's not the only moniker I have. They call me Herod the Great, as well as Herod the Builder. All are true about me. Why would you call me Hire the Great and the Builder? Because I took a backwashed nation of Judah and I built greatness into it. If you were to visit Israel today, you would see building and city and palace after building city and palace. But I, Herod the King, Herod the Great, Herod the Builder, built. Undoubtedly, you would go to the Temple Mount. Do you know before me, the Temple Mount was less than half its size? (laughs) That temple 
built by Zerubbabel and Ezra and Haggai on a mere 17 acres of land. But when I became king, I expanded the Temple Mount to 37 acres, the most valuable 37 acres the planet knows. Four million square feet. I expanded the building itself, the temple, more than doubling its size. No, no, I didn't go there to worship. I didn't build it to worship. Oh, I know all about the Jewish God. I know all about the one true God and the coming Messiah. You know I'm half Jewish, don't you? Half Jewish, half Idumean, which is Jordanian Arab. I grew up learning about the Messiah. I grew up learning about the coming anointed one. But I don't worship him. I worship myself quite naturally. Yet I built the greatest temple the world has ever known. In fact, when the Romans came and they leveled Jerusalem and they burned the Temple Mount, they still left my retaining wall. I think you call it the Wailing Wall. It's really the Western Wall. There's a thousand feet of it left about 375 feet that you can visualize holding up the 37 acres. They left it as a testament to my greatness as well as their greatness. But not only did I more than double the size of the Temple Mount and expanded the temple itself, but I built several incredible palaces. I think of Masada, perhaps you've been there, it's down south by the Dead Sea. It's on a flat plain, a jet of rock coming out of the ground. It's an engineering marvel. I put 70 to 80 years of food there. If I were ever to grace the place, it would be ready for me. I built a second palace just a few miles south of Jerusalem. What was this great palace called? <laughs> well, naturally, it was called the Herodian after me. I also built the city of Caesarea Maritima. It's up north, north of Tel Aviv. This great city was to house the Roman army. But what was an engineering marvel is I built the largest seaport on the Mediterranean Sea, my seaport could handle over 300 ships simultaneously. I'm Herod, King Herod, Herod the Great, Herod the Builder. Know me, bow before me, never cross me. There were some past tense who crossed me. I think of my once favorite wife, Mary Omni I. She crossed me and now she's pushing up daisies. It took a while to get over her, but I did. I had nine other wives. There was a mother-in-law, Oy vey, 
who dared to tell me, King Herod, what to do. She too is pushing up daisies. It took no time to get over her. Believe you me. And then there were three of my sons. I suspected them of plotting to bump me off. They have met their maker. Nobody crosses me. Oh, there were some that tried. There were court officials, there were politicians, other family members. Every one of them is dead. Honor me. Bow before me. Fear me. I don't fear God. I don't fear man. I am King Herod. Well, as I said, I did not grow up worshiping and serving the one true God. In fact, I was a high priest and our most prized religion, and I would actually lead others in this false worship as well. And we would worship in our temple called a ziggurat. Let me explain a little bit about what these ziggurats look like. They had three different levels. The first level, the street level, this would be like a storefront property. You would walk into this uh, front door. You would find idols and trinkets that you could purchase. And, and we would actually use those proceeds to, to stuff our pockets a little bit heavier. And we would make a nice profit off of those. On the second level of the ziggurat, this would be essentially our sanctuary. This would be the area where we would worship the gods of Nabu and Marduk and Ahura Mazda. This is where we would practice our worship services to these false gods. Now, at the time, I was not following the Lord, and I did not realize how, how evil that actually was. But maybe the most evil thing that happened in our ziggurat actually happened on the third level. See, on the third level, there would be a skylight where we could view the stars and the constellations and, and behold the celestial movements. And what we would do is we would gaze upon those activities and we would predict the future or at least attempt to predict the future. Now, I say attempt to because we were often met with mixed results. We were wrong as much as we were right, yet because it's pleased the king, this is what we continued to practice. And I remember one specific night, looking into the sky, looking at the stars in the sky and seeing something that I had never seen before. It was a new planet, a, a new celestial movement. I didn't really know what it was at that time, but it was brighter than all the other stars. It was a little bit bigger and it just drew my attention. And I had no idea what the star meant. And so as any good magi does, I began to grab our books of astrology and I began to scour through them looking for some answers. And the more I looked, I realized that the answer is not going to be in my resources. They're not going to be answers in my books that I have. And I looked at the corner of the room there and I, and I saw some old scrolls that I really hadn't paid much attention to. See, these scrolls were attained by us during the Jewish captivity where we had many Jewish nobles with us and, and there wasn't a great relationship between Babylonians and the Jews and, and I didn't pay much attention to them. But I wasn't finding the answers in my book so I decided to, to start looking through these scrolls and I grabbed one of the scrolls. It was, it was entitled Numbers. 
And as I began to read the scroll, it just felt like my eyes were beginning to be open to the answer that I was looking for. And I remember one phrase very clearly as I read it. And the phrase was this, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Uh, there will be a star that will rise out of Israel and a ruler out of Jacob. And it was in this moment that I realized that this was a prophecy, that there was to be a king born, and not just any king, but the king of kings, Jesus, the savior of the world, the Messiah. It was, it was a revelation to me, and I was very excited. And so I turned to my associates who were with me, Belteshazzar and Melchior, and I excitedly told them, Belteshazzar, Melchior, I've, I've discovered what this star means. There is a king to be born, and you will never guess where he is to be born. He's going to be born in Israel. So we loaded up our, our things, we packed the camels, and we began to make our journey to Jerusalem. But here's the most fascinating part of this. As we began our journey, it was almost as if that this star that we were beholding and studying and learning about, it was, it was like it slowed down. And it was just leading us to the place where this new king would be born. A new what? A new who? A new king? Not in my kingdom. Not in Jerusalem. Not in Judea. I already have to put up with Caesar Augustus. Tiberius Caesar Augustus. Because his army is a little bigger than mine. But mark my words. There will not be another king, no rival king to me, none. I am told that there are magi, royal court advisors from the Parthia and the, the Babylonian Empire. They have traveled 650 miles each way to come to see some baby that they believe will be the king, the Messiah, the anointed one. Many believe that this anointed one will overthrow Rome. Have at it. I'll be happy. I'll sign up. But not at the expense of my rule. Not at the expense of my kingdom. I'm told that these magi who are waiting for me saw a star in the sky, read some sacred biblical scrolls, identified the new star as representing the new king, and then miraculously that star led them on a path 650 miles to here, to Jerusalem, to get final directions. Think. Think, Herod, think. How do I use this to my advantage? I know that they think Messiah is close, but I don't know where. They don't know where. They want some direction. Think, Herod. My scribes can probably give them some direction. And then, 
And then they can find the baby. They can do the hard work. And I'll entice them. I'll command them to come back to tell me where this baby is. And I'll lead them to believe that I too will go to worship this baby. I will not worship the baby. Scribes! Immediately my, my presence was filled, was surrounded by these Jewish court advisors. My brain trust. Scribes, I said dangerously. <laughs> I love the look of fear in their eyes. Scribes, where is the coming Messiah to be born? Where have we predicted this anointed one to grace us with his presence? Carefully, they responded. <laughs> I love the look of their fear. Carefully, one of them said, there's a biblical scroll. It's the book of Micah, the fifth chapter. The second verse, it says this. But you, O Bethlehem. Bethlehem? You got to be kidding me. You know the saying. You got to be somewhere to have geography. That's nowhere. That's a hole in the map. It means house of bread. Maybe this Messiah will be the bread of life or something. But you, O Bethlehem of Apertath, a word that means fruitful, is this bread of life to be fruitful? But you, O Bethlehem of Epitaph, are by no means least among the tribes of Judah. For out of you will come one who will be a ruler of my people Israel, whose coming forth is from ancient of days. Bethlehem. Can any good come out of Bethlehem? I will send the Magi to Bethlehem to find the baby and then to return with directions that I may go and worship the baby. <laughs> well, I remember meeting Herod shortly after arriving in Jerusalem. And he pretended to welcome us and he welcomed us into his palace. But it was very easy to see that he was on edge about this new Messiah king that had, uh, was predicted to be born in his area. So he, he, had, he had very little good intention on his mind and in his heart. And we, we did a little bit of research before making our journey to Jerusalem. We wanted to be learned on the area and the culture and the customs. And so we learned a little bit about this King Herod. And he was an evil, dark, violent king. We actually discovered that there were hundreds of Jewish leaders being held in prison, and it was ordered that they be executed upon the death of Herod. Now, you might be asking yourself, why would a king do this to his people? Well, you see, Herod was not very well liked by the citizens of his reigning land. He, he wasn't very well liked at all. And so he knew that upon his death, it might even be a celebratory event. And he wanted tears shed 
upon his death. And so he had these leaders executed because he knew if they died, there would be tears shed in Jerusalem. And so this is the kind of king that he was. And so when he told us that he wanted the the area, the the place, the exact place where this king was to be born, we we felt a bit skeptical because we we didn't really think that his intentions were pure. Call us skeptical, but I felt like we were seeing through the facade. And that night as we lay in bed sleeping, we were given a dream by God to, to not go back to Herod, but to go back to our homeland of Babylon. So we listen and we're obedient to the voice of the Lord. As I awaited the return of the Magi, of whom I instructed to come to give me detailed directions that I may go and worship the child, I pondered the fate of that child. Worship him? No. I'll murder him and his parents for good measure. There will be no witnesses to the dirty deed. But then I thought, what if the Magi do not obey me? What if the Magi do not return? Well, then I will do something very dark. Very, very dark, even for me. I will send my army and we will murder every boy under the age of two. Every one of them will die, ensuring that I get the child. You know, as I thought about it, I pondered the reaction of my scribes when I told them that this child would be born. They were troubled. In fact, all of Jerusalem was troubled with them. What is that about? The scribes had written. The scribes had preached. The scribes had declared that the Messiah would come. The anointed one would come. The holy one would come. They had warned us to make our lives right. They had given lip service to the coming Messiah. They had told us that we must long for the Messiah. And yet when the Messiah was predicted, when Magi talked about biblical scrolls, when they talked about a miracle in the sky, and when we discovered that the baby was a mere five miles away, five miles, not one of my scribes went with the Magi. Not one of my scribes went after the Magi. Not one of my scribes could be bothered to go and worship this new king, to bow before this new king. They gave lip service to the Messiah, but the Messiah got in the way of their agenda. The Messiah got in the way of their preferences, and they couldn't be bothered to go to see, to worship this Messiah. My scribes, my holy men. What a bunch of phonies. Laughable. 
After we had left Herod's creepy palace, we began to make our way down to Bethlehem. It was about a five-mile journey, and once again, the star was leading us. And as we finally saw where this Messiah King was born, it was quite remarkable and, and quite unexpected. We realized he was a king, so we expected the treatment of a king born in a palace, born with pomp and circumstance, but that is not what we found at all. Instead of that, we found him born in a stable cave. Fully God, fully man, God's son born in a stable cave. What humility. Born to lowly parents, Joseph and Mary. And it's almost like God was leading us to, to bring gifts to him. And, and as I look back on the gifts that we brought him, it was, it was very fitting for the man that Jesus was, that he would that we'd grow up, live sinlessly, die on a cross, rise again on the third day. It's almost as if our gifts represented who he was and what he would do. Let me tell you about the gifts that we brought Jesus that evening. We brought him the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, gold is, is a gift of royalty. So in bringing him the gift of gold, we were signifying that he is king of kings and lord of lords, different than Fra the V, different than Herod, the king, the Messiah king. Gold represented his royalty. The second gift we brought him was frankincense. Now, frankincense is a, is a wonderful smelling a gum that is produced from trees. You would tap these trees in the summer. You would harvest the resin in the fall. And even in the Old Testament days, during the, the incense that would be burning and there was, was used during the Thanksgiving or grain offerings. It was an act of thanks as we brought in our first fruits. So as we were bringing this frankincense, it's, it's as if we were saying, thank you. God, thank you for the gift of your son. Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice that you would perform on the cross and rise again on the third day. It was, it was an act of thanksgiving. But maybe the most interesting gift that we brought that evening was myrrh. See, myrrh was a symbol, a picture of death. When one would die, one would be wrapped in this myrrh. In fact, Jesus, upon his death, would be wrapped in approximately 75 pounds of myrrh. It's an interesting gift to bring to a birth. Essentially, if I could use your modern day language, it would be like bringing a casket to a baby shower. It's an interesting gift, but it pictured what Jesus would do, the work that he would perform to bring salvation for all who would believe. And Jesus would do exactly that. He would grow up, he would mature he would live a sinless life, die on a cross, and on the third day rise again, saving all those who believe in him as Savior and Lord. Well, it's probably a challenge for us to conceive two more polarized responses to the Messiah. One of humility and of worship and another of pride to say the least. And if you're a little bit concerned about Herod's health, well, so am I. Just want you to imagine what it's like to share an office wall with him, but that's beside the point. But as we wrap up, I've got two quick thoughts for us. First, allow us to consider the child that the Magi worshiped, the infinite Jesus, fully God, fully man, 
who came to earth and took on our form and our flesh, who lived a life like you and me, who knew what it was like to grow up, who knew what it was like to, to suffer and be tempted, yet Jesus never gave in to sin. It was perfect in his thought and attitude and action, fulfilling the entire law, which qualified Jesus to be the substitute that we needed. So he went to the cross, died in our place, and rose from the dead on the third day. That's the good news of the gospel, the good news of salvation that is available to all people, but it applies to those who respond with the ABCDs. It's an acronym that might help us think about salvation today. Here's the first. A is accept. Accept that we're sinners. Accept that we need to be saved from our sin. Accept that there's nothing that we could do to save ourselves. That's the A. The second is B, believe. Believing in Jesus as our substitute, trusting in him as our savior, believing that when he died, he paid the price for your sin and my sin on the cross, the substitute that we needed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Jesus died for us so that we could live. We have to believe in him. And C is confess. Confess that we're sinners. Sin is any thought or attitude or action that displeases God. And none of us are perfect. We know that. The wages of our sin is death, not just earthly death, but eternal death. We have to confess our sin to the Lord. And then D is depart. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, turning away from our old way of life and following Christ, the, the Bible word is repentance. It's that turning away toward Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Accept, believe, confess, depart. Now, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, why not? Well, what's holding you back from believing in Jesus trusting him as your Lord and your Savior, it is the most important decision you can make. More important than a job you might take or the person that you might marry or where you might live. Eternity is literally weighing in the balance. Christmas is the time of new beginnings. Don't leave today without knowing that you believe in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Now, for those of us that do know Christ as our Savior, here's a, a second thought for us. Head knowledge is no substitute for worship. Think for a moment about Herod and the scribes. They had access to the Old Testament. They knew the, the scriptures. They even cited Micah 5 verse 2. They knew where the Messiah was going to be born, yet none of them made the five-mile walk down to Bethlehem to worship the Messiah. Now contrast that with the Magi. They traveled over 1,200 miles round trip not just to, to see Jesus, but to worship him as their messianic king. And God blessed their obedience. I think the same is true for us, that head knowledge is not a substitute for heart worship. Christmas, it's more than just understanding the, the stories, knowing the Bible passages. True Christmas happens when we worship the true Christ. And it's essential that each one of us take time individually and collectively uh, apart from the cookie decorating and the Christmas parties and the gift giving and the gift receiving and the Christmas tree hunting. Each one of us need to take time to worship Christ. Maybe that means listening to Christmas worship 
music and setting our hearts toward Jesus or taking time individually or with our family to read through the Christmas account. Or maybe it means just talking to Jesus, praying and adoring him for who he is and for what he's done, that he came and lived and died in our place. True Christmas occurs when we worship the true Christ. Let's make him our priority this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, you've given us an opportunity today to see two very different responses to the Messiah. Empowered by your Spirit, may you give us the ability to respond, not like Herod, but like the Magi. Not with hearts of pride, but with hearts of humility, with hearts of worship, crying out to Jesus as our Savior and as our King and as our Lord. So as we enter through and continue through the Christmas season, instead of just being consumed by all of the busyness and all of the things that might occupy our time, may we take time to intentionally worship Christ for who he is and for what he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Ta-ta, bobbleheads.